Well, please remain standing and turn in your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 6. We, uh, if you're visiting with us, we've printed the text for you in your worship guide on page 10. Um, if you don't have a Bible uh, with you, you can grab uh, the Pew Bible too and, uh, and turn with me at page 811. If you don't have a Bible... Uh, We'd love for you to take one of those home with you. Um, I'm actually going to be reading. We stopped at verse 13. I'm actually going to be reading all the way through verse 14. Starting with verse 9. This is God's word. Jesus teaches us, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. You may be seated. Will you pray with me again and ask God's blessing on his word preached? Let's pray. Father, your Holy Spirit has been poured out because the Lord Jesus has gone and taken his throne. And so now by the power of your Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear the gospel, eyes to see our sin and his glory hearts to believe, maybe some for the very first time this morning. Tend to your word, O Lord, so that we might experience in soul-refreshing ways. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been saying that as we've studying the Sermon on the Mountain, if you're visiting with us, we're working our way through Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. We've been camping out in the Lord's Prayer uh, for the last few weeks. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is laying out what a flourishing life looks like. But here's the thing. If you try to live the Sermon on the Mount, apart from faith in Jesus, you will quickly find that you can't do it. You can't flourish. If this is the flourishing life, you can't flourish apart from a relationship with Jesus because he's calling us to things that are so great that you don't have and I don't have the ability to carry it out on our own. Because Jesus is at work in this world creating a new people, not a good people. A new people who have been remade by God. Born again is the language that Jesus uses. A people who have been remade by God so that they might obey his commands and find a life of flourishing. Apart from a relationship with Jesus, you can't live this way. And so the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' marching orders, the orders of his kingdom. He's setting an agenda here in the Sermon on the Mount. And his people are evidence of that kingdom presence. He's not making a good people, he's making a new people. People who don't live by their own strength, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. People who have been recreated by the resurrection power of Jesus, whose life begins again when they come into a relationship with Jesus. And so here's the point. To live this way, in a flourishing way, is decidedly 
countercultural, a new people in the old world, a kingdom of people who live in a sin-cursed world. So defining a Christian in Columbia, Tennessee, as I thought about this this week, I've thought about this repeatedly, defining a Christian in our context is difficult. If you define what a Christian is too narrowly, then you seem judgmental and exclusive. On the flip side, though, if you, dis- if you define a Christian too broadly, what you end up doing is you promote a false sense of security, and the gospel itself will lose all of its power, and no one will have an actual experience of God's love. And so how about this, a countercultural way of defining a Christian? This is what a flourishing person is. A flourishing person loves forgiveness. Think about this for a minute. How many times has Jesus brought us to this point, forgive us our debts as we forgive us our debtors? How many times has he brought us to this point with the topic in the Sermon on the Mount of forgiveness and reconciliation? In the Beatitudes, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Matthew chapter 5, just after the Beatitudes, Jesus commands us, if you're offering a gift at the altar, and remember that one of your brothers or sisters has something against you, go leave it on the altar. First be reconciled, then come and offer your gift. The Father would rather have a reconciled relationship than your money. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, just a few verses later, turn to him the other also. Love your enemies. Just a few verses later, pray for those who persecute you. That kind of life seems utterly impossible. Like someone, it almost seems like, I thought about this week, it almost seems like something that you'd read in a fantasy novel about this great utopian world where people actually lived that way. A utopian world that could never exist unless, unless there was a new king with new power creating a new people who loved forgiveness a few years ago four men robbed a restaurant and shot and killed a 34 year old man his family as you can imagine was outraged man was convicted sent to prison and received letter after letter of hateful mail from the slain man's family except the slain man's father was a christian It took years to get here, but he forgave the man who had murdered his son out of of nothing more than wanting money. And he wrote to the slain man's murderer, his son's murderer in prison with these words, I forgive you. And then he writes, I want to be on your visitation list. And this is why. He says, I wanted to go and tell him about Jesus. And I want my son's murderer to know that I now love him. I want this young man and my son to hug together in heaven one day. Because forgiveness is not difficult. Forgiveness is impossible without God. Augustine calls this particular petition of the Lord's Prayer. He calls it the terrible petition. Because it should strike fear in us. And we've been saying this all along. And my goal for us is that we would, with trembling expectation, when we begin to pray the Lord's Prayer, both fearful that He's going to change radical things in us, 
if we pray this way or when we pray this way, but also expectation. He's going to change things in me when I begin to pray this way. It should strike fear in us to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors because it calls us to consider relationships. First, our relationship with God and then our relationship with others causes us to deal together these two. And it marries these two together. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And then in verse 14, it's the only one of the petitions that Jesus circles around and comes back to. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. And the likewise, if you don't forgive others, your Father in heaven won't forgive you. It puts these two together. You must consider your relationship with God, but likewise, you must consider your relationship with others. You need to be reconciled to God. You need to be reconciled to each other. You need to have a flourishing relationship with God through forgiveness, and you need to have a flourishing relationship with others through forgiveness as well. And so if the mark of the Christian is that they love forgiveness, it's this, a love to be forgiven, and I love to be one who forgives others. And so Jesus teaches us to pray first, forgive us our debts. There's an order of importance here, a priority. And then he gives us a method. And we'll talk about the method secondly. But a priority. You must first ask for forgiveness from God. You won't experience flourishing unless you have a reconciled relationship to God through the forgiveness of your sins. And so this is what he teaches us to pray first, forgive us. Not just once. Notice that this petition falls after verse 11, where Jesus teaches us to pray, give us our daily bread. And we saw last week, he's teaching us, today, give me my daily bread. I'm going to pray this every day. And then he moves to forgiveness of sins. And almost every commentator made this point. He's not just saying, do it once. He's saying, make this a daily habit. Why? Daily? Because we sin daily. And you can't have too much of a good thing. You, you heard our call to confession today. Blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven. Could you have too much of that? Daily ask, forgive me of my sins because I've sinned against you daily and I want to experience your forgiving love daily. But that begs a question, doesn't it? We've been begging it all along and we've not defined our terms. What exactly does forgiveness mean? What is forgiveness. And again, in our culture, it's kind of a word we use often, but we don't really define our terms or think about what it means. We don't stop and ask, what is forgiveness? And what does it involve? What exactly am I asking the Father to do? Well, first, forgiveness, the word itself, assumes that there is a debt to be paid. And Jesus uses this word debt. He has a number of words that he could dig into his bag to describe sin by. For instance, in Luke's gospel, when he teaches us to pray for forgiveness, he uses the common word for sins. But here he digs deep into his word bag, and he pulls out the word for debt. And understanding sin as debt reminds us that sin ultimately is relational. It involves another person. It's not accurate just to say I need to forgive myself or I've sinned against myself or I've just broken my own standards. 
Because when we say forgive us our debts, we're acknowledging that this is a relationship that has been broken. And that relationship has incurred a debt. It reminds us as well that God keeps an accounting. That there will be a day of judgment when we will have to give an account for all that we've done. God keeps a record book, a ledger, and in it he records everything that we have done. Things that you have forgotten about. Sins that I've left unnoticed in my life. The all-seeing, all-knowing judge has recorded in a book. And those sins have indebted you to God. And this sin must be paid in full. So you might think that my particular sins are not that big of a deal. I know I do this all the time. Like I, my, um, my propensity to see the sins of others are much greater than the propensity to see the sins of my own life. And, and you might think to yourself, my sins just aren't that big of a deal. I haven't killed anybody. I don't sell drugs. I don't even do drugs. I might do a, sell a lie here or a lie there. I might get a little angry, but generally my sin is not all that great. And the problem with thinking this way is that your scale is off and your accounting is off. Your accounting is off. You're not counting your sins correctly. You don't scrutinize yourself against the measure of God's perfection. You remember the first and great commandment. Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. And to measure ourselves against that accounting method, that standard makes us see things our sin is much greater than we've once thought and you may not be a christian and and the word sin is kind of um, distasteful for you or a little bit of a stumbling block maybe you just think about sin this way sin is 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 making something lesser greater than god right so if the first and great commandment is love the lord your god with all your heart soul mind and strength all sin is giving my heart soul, mind, and strength to the created thing instead. I love my job with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I love my pleasure much more than, than God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I am pursued in building a name for myself, turning the created thing into the ultimate thing. We do this. When we begin measuring ourselves against this standard, we do this a whole lot more than we care to admit. There are counties off, but our scale is off too. I mean, the debt is great not simply because of the quantity of what we have done, though it is great when we begin to count ourselves this way against the standard of love for God, our heart, soul, mind, and strength, but the scale is off as well. The degree of our debt to God is ultimately related to the gravity or the gravitas, or they'll use the language of the Bible, the glory of the one I've offended. Let me see if I can illustrate this. If I slap my brother, children, don't do it. But if you do, which I'm sure probably you have, you'll get into a little bit of trouble. If you see your mom get pulled over by a police officer and she slaps the police officer, she's going to get in a lot more trouble than you did slapping your brother. Why? It's the same action. Because the gravity, the weight, the glory of the police officer is greater in his position than that of your brother. Now, some of you might want to do this, but you can't slap the president. If you were, 
the repercussions would be much greater than if you slapped your brother. Why? Because of the gravity of his office. So our sin is measured. The scale is against the great glory of the incomparable God who has not only punished the smallest sins, but destined the smallest sins to eternal judgment because it is an offense against his eternal, infinite, unending glory. Measure ourselves to little and our scale is off and because sin creates a great debt with God the judge there's a second thing with sin. forgiveness is transactional that's the nature of it it's costly so we think about the transaction that's necessary for forgiveness to happen if you have a student loan or a mortgage with a bank, and they decide, I'm going to forgive your debt. That debt just doesn't go away. It may cost you nothing, but it actually costs the bank the amount of the debt that is owed. When, a few years ago, banks were deemed too big to fail because their debt load was greater than their assets, and they would fail, and that was just incomprehensible, someone had to pay off the debt. We call it a bailout. It was really a forgiveness of debt paid by the government. A transaction occurred where the assets of one covered the debt of another. And so when we pray for forgiveness, we're actually asking for God to, to make a transaction occur. The debt must be paid and we're bankrupt. We are spiritually without any assets. And so this is how the gospel works. It's it's transactional. In the courtroom of God the judge, a transaction occurs. The debt that your sin accumulated is paid by Jesus, and the riches that he earned is given to you. A transaction occurred so that he who had all things gave everything so that by forgiveness, you who owed everything could be given all things for nothing. That's the cross. The righteous son died so that your account with God may be paid in full with his blood. God accounted him who knew no sin to be sin in your place so that he who had all things gave everything at the cross so that by forgiveness you who owed everything may have everything given to you for nothing where the debt has been paid by the boundless, infinite, eternal, finished work of Jesus, then it is enough. It is enough. It is enough for all your sins. It is enough for the worst of your sins. It is necessary for the least of your sins. So if you're in Christ, God does not account your sins against you anymore because the debt's been paid off. The language of Paul is he takes it, he says he nailed it to the tree. That means it's done. You walk away from it. And now Jesus presents you to the Father. He does it this way. The transactions occurred. Debt's been paid. My wealth given to him, given to her. And so now he presents us to the Father and he says this with an announcement. Come into my Father's room. 
You won't find it a courtroom anymore. You'll find it a place of comfort and joy. Approach boldly the throne of grace because it no longer is a place where you'll receive judgment. Your sins are forgiven. And he does this announcement, stands up and says to a father, this one is mine. His sins have been paid. There is no debt against him anymore. So now I present you to him, holy, blameless, and free from accusation. But here's what Jesus is also teaching. You've got to ask for the forgiveness of your sins. There are enough riches in Christ to cover all the debts of all the people and all their sins. The transaction, though, occurs only for those who ask. You must ask, forgive us our debts. God does not forgive everyone. He does forgive anyone, anyone who would ask. But he does not forgive everyone, only those who ask. Our current president famously asked, was asked during the campaign, his sins were forgiven. And his reply, I'm not sure that I've ever asked for my sins to be forgiven. I don't think that I've really done anything wrong that requires it. His solution, I, I don't bring God into the picture. I just try and make everything right. And here's Jesus. If you do not ask for your sins to be forgiven, then they are not forgiven. You must ask. My friends, if you're, if you're visiting with us and never asked, ask. The Father immediately, immediately a transaction will occur and your sins will be placed on Jesus and his death will be enough and the Father will forgive. He does not forgive everyone, but he will forgive anyone. None of your sins are too great that they cannot be forgiven and none of your sins are too small that they do not need to be forgiven. And so we also forgive. Secondly, we also forgive our debtors. A Christian loves forgiveness, loves to be forgiven, and loves to forgive. See, who's been forgiven of much loves much. This is Jesus' point in Luke chapter 7. And this, this prayer actually helps us to evaluate our spiritual health. It can be a litmus test. How am I doing spiritually? Do I have a growing sensitivity over sin so that I want more forgiveness and I'm asking more for it and delighting in it more? And another litmus test, am I forgiving others? If we take sin lightly, it's because we've taken God lightly. But if we don't forgive, it's because we've forgotten how much we've been forgiven of. I can't silo my relationship to God. Jesus forbids it. I mean, he really very pointedly makes this point. Look, if you don't forgive, God's not going to forgive you. The two have to go hand in hand, not because forgiving other merits God's forgiveness of you. That merit is based on Jesus. His work is enough. But those who have been forgiven now mark their lives by being those who forgive others. I'm praying, forgive me, and this is the terrible petition. Forgive me in the same way that I go about forgiving other people. If I'm going to commit to being forgiven, then I must, I must commit to forgiving others. Okay, this isn't easy. 
I mean, it's really, really hard, right? But it's an essential mark of a Christian community. You can't be part of Jesus' community unless you are forgiven. And you can't stay and remain part of Jesus' community unless you're willing to forgive others. And what makes this difficult, what makes forgiveness of others difficult, is because a deep sense of our dignity is challenged when we're sinned against. Our sense of value, our sense of dignity, our sense of worth is diminished when someone sins against us. I mean, look, when a woman cheats on her husband, the message the husband receives in that moment goes really deep. The adultery will feel like the wife is saying to the husband, you're not enough. You don't don't have value to me. Or when a friend gossips about you, it feels like they're saying, I reject you because you aren't aren't worth me protecting your reputation. And so forgiveness is deeply difficult because our dignity all of a sudden has come into play in this transaction. And so when I call to forgive others, what it feels like is my dignity is being diminished again. And this is why vengeance is such a seductress. Because it's my chance. Vengeance is my chance to regain my dignity and and destroy the other person in the process. But here's the problem with vengeance. It cheats, it treats relationships like they're a zero-sum game. Like there's a clear winner and a clear loser. And I've got to be the winner. That means you have to be the loser. But forgiveness, forgiveness is a win-win situation for all all three parties involved it is a win for the victim to be forgiven it is a win for the perpetrator to be forgiven it is a win for jesus to have a people who love forgiveness that now takes us to our method let me give us six quick things and how we can become a forgiving people the mark this is the mark of a new creation in a sin-cursed world right This is a mark that the kingdom has come. People forgiving each other. First, when you have sinned against someone, ask for forgiveness quickly. Got to ask for forgiveness, but do it quickly. There's an urgency in this prayer. Again, if we're praying daily, forgive us our sins as we forgive others. I'm committing myself to quick forgiveness of others, and I'm also committing myself to quickly asking for forgiveness because I want to enjoy the quick forgiveness of God. I want to be like him who quickly and immediately forgives sins. But I also need to ask quickly. When I've offended you, I'm going to ask. Again, remember Jesus' command. If you remember your brother has something against you, drop what you're doing in worship, walk out of the room, and be reconciled to him or her. There's an urgency to it. You need to ask. Secondly, first dwell on God's forgiveness of you, then dwell on, then dwell on the offenses of others, right? There's an order here. It's a priority again. If I dwell on the sin of others, whatever I dwell on gets big. Here's a pattern in the Christian life. This is how the Christian life works. You become what you meditate on. You become what you dwell on. Dwell on Jesus, you'll be exchanged from one degree of glory to another, Paul says. Dwell on the sin of others, you'll become resentful and bitter and unforgiving. But if you dwell on the vastness of what I have been forgiven of in Christ, and I don't dwell on the sins committed against me, 
then I'll become a forgiving person. Just this past week, a man did the impossible. He climbed El Capitan in Yosemite National Park without any ropes. Without any ropes. You think about it. It's a 3,000 foot sheer rock face. It's larger than any skyscraper built in this world. And he did it without ropes. No spikes, no safety gear, just his fingers and his feet. And he did it in just under four hours. I can barely walk 3,000 square feet on flat ground in four hours. Now imagine that when this man now encounters a flight of stairs, he just laughs. Oh, it's, I've scaled El Capitan without ropes. That's just a step. And the same thing works for our souls. If you've been forgiven of much, and you see that, You don't struggle as much with forgiving others. But if you do struggle, it's because you've lost sight of the great heights that you have been forgiven of. If you, if we, I, magnify the offense of others, it's only because I've minimized my offense against God. Third, third method for working forgiveness into our lives, see their offenses as debts. Right? This, I think, is often overlooked in, in working towards forgiveness. This language of debt is, again, helpful horizontally in our relationships. You've sinned against me. I don't need to overlook that. I need to acknowledge it. I don't want to diminish your sin or the fact that a relational debt has incurred. Because forgiveness requires a mindset towards their offenses. Don't sweep them under the rug. I don't need to minimize them. I can actually say, look, what you did was awful, but it does not compare to what I have done against the Creator. Acknowledge them so the transaction can occur. Fourth, belaboring this point, but make forgiveness a daily commitment. Martin Luther King once said, forgiveness is not an occasional act, it's a constant attitude. A constant attitude. And so Jesus' followers pray this prayer. Pray for our daily bread. Pray for the daily forgiveness of my sins. But I also pray daily that I would forgive others. I make up in the morning. God, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to commit to forgiveness today. I know, my, I know my wife. I know my husband. I know my children will probably do the same things to me today that they did yesterday or the day before or the day before that. So I'm going to make this commitment. I'm going to forgive them today. Until you stop forgiving me, I won't stop making this my daily commitment. And the Father will not stop because Jesus paid the debt. Fifth, don't forget to work on forgetting. Because forgiveness means, again, here's how the transactional nature of the debt occurs. Dealt with, gone. Father says, I will not count your sins against you anymore. I will not remember them. Put them behind me behind my back separate them as far from you as the east is from the west and so don't forget to work on forgetting forgetting doesn't happen overnight when someone sinned against you it takes some work to say i'm that that is forgiven i'm gonna forget sixth lastly forgiveness means you're committing 
to reconciliation. It's a commitment to a relationship of thriving. That doesn't mean it's just immediately attained. Like, I've forgiven, I've forgotten, and now our relationship's all put back together and thriving. It doesn't happen like that. God doesn't expect it to happen like that. But he does expect those who have been forgiven of much to commit to a relationship, making a relationship that now looks like your relationship to him, where it's forgotten and you're thriving. Reconciled. And so if you say, I've forgiven you, and don't work on the relationship, they're actually laboring daily. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna work until this relationship flourishes. Then you probably have not forgiven them and you're still holding, harboring bitterness and resentment. So work daily on this process until a reconciled, thriving relationship happens. So this is what a thriving, flourishing, Jesus-empowered, kingdom-centered community looks like. It's the new creation broken into a sin-cursed world. And nothing evidences I think nothing evidences this. Nothing's more countercultural than forgiveness. Just two years ago, Dylan Roof marched into a Charleston church. He was an invited guest in African American Bible study. Christians, new people, not good people, new people, born again by the living Word of God, forgiven, living in an old sin cursed world. And the old sin-cursed world did its thing. Unleashing racial slurs while he unleashed the bullets from his gun, Dylan Roof gunned down nine people. But the new kingdom broke into the old sin-cursed world and did its thing. At Dylan Roof's bond hearing, mother after mother got up and looked him in the eyes and said words very similar to these from Ethel Lance, one of the mothers. She acknowledged, quite frankly, a debt had occurred. She said, you took something very precious from me. I'll never again talk to my daughter. I'll never hold her again. And she looked him in the eyes and she said, but I forgive you and have mercy on your soul. This old sin-cursed world does its thing. But those who are in Christ do their thing. They love to be forgiven. And they love to offer forgiveness. Let's pray. Father, if you would count our sins against us, we would be crushed under the insurmountable weight of our sin. If you were to count our sins against us, It would take us for all eternity, suffering under your wrath to pay the debt. A thousand years from now, under your wrath, we would look up and see the ledger not yet been cleared. Millennia from now, the ledger not yet been cleared, but you and your grace cleared the ledger for us by crucifying your son and his blood has washed us clean and so oh father 
now for all eternity, those who are in Christ Jesus. Enjoy your smile. And so, Father, would you please make us a people who smile on those who sin against us. Make us a forgiving people. Change our marriages, change our parenting, change our love for each other by making us deeply forgiving people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.